Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Yo, it's Robert Ory, and we're always bringing you the best upbeat sports conversations and the biggest guests we can track down on a Big Shot Bob podcast. One of the best ever, John Sally, is with us. John didn't realize that the real killer was Robert Ory. I said it a lot. <laughs> I said it, didn't I, Rob? I was like, yeah. the quiet one is the one you better watch out for. He don't get mad at anything. Uh-oh, something's up. <laughs> and don't miss the show on Wednesday the 31st as we talk to Lakers president, Jeannie Buss. Subscribe now everywhere you get your podcast, and leave us a rating and review to be featured on the show. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, talented writer. His work appears at 538, many other places, and have a fun, wide-ranging conversation. Talk about our takeaways from the trade deadline, what we're looking for over the next few weeks in the NBA, the playoff chases in both conferences, the Knicks, and a lot more. A great conversation runs well over an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always a good time. We are basically a week out from the trade deadline, and I always find this stretch of time, I mean, you, you don't want to overreact. I mean, that that is a, a very real concern with this. But also, we have more information than we did before. So how are you kind of squaring that? Like, what do you, what do you, what is, what has surprised you? What has kind of gone to form? Uh, well, I think the Magic clearly are the winners of the trade deadline. Three and zero. And I think the Bulls are one and two since then. No, but like, it's such a short period of time. It's hard to like. It's hard to take anything away. The one thing that I think you know concretely that has worked quite well is Aaron Gordon in Denver doing and saying all the right things for three games. Um, the question with Aaron Gordon, I guess, is always more his willingness to do and say the right things for a significantly longer period of time than that. I do think that he'll be more willing to play, you know, the role that I think a lot of people that have always believed in his talent have kind of wanted for him for a while. I think he'll be more willing to do that in Denver, even if only because that's like the only role available to him. Like he's not going to be the guy creating the offense for that team. Like they have Jokic. They have Murray, they have Porter, like all of those guys are going to be trusted to create offense before they ask him to do that. The only things really available to him are like spot up shooting, screen and rolling on the short roll, 
defending every inch of the floor at all times, getting out on the break. And those are the kind of things that people have said, like, if he does those things as well as possible and his skill set fits, then he can be the kind of star that he's wanted to be. But he wanted to be like a different kind of star. You know what I mean? But if he does those things at an extremely high level for this Denver team, like I think it significantly raises their ceiling. And doing that, I think we've seen with other guys within that role, doing that can make you the kind of not necessarily a superstar, but like look at the way people think about PJ Tucker for doing all of that stuff on the Rockets. And I think Gordon is a more skilled player than Tucker is and more athletic now than Tucker has been these last few years. So I think if he can, you know, I don't think he's going to necessarily defend at the level P.J. Tucker has for these last few years, but if he can come close to it and do a little bit more offensively, I think that he'll get the recognition he's been wanting and it'll make Denver a lot better. Yeah, Gordon is my biggest takeaway too. And um, it it shouldn't be a huge surprise that because the, the intuit the like kind of intuitive fit there I thought was, was strong. You know, the idea that mm-hmm. Gordon has these physical gifts and they make – sense along with Jokic as long as there was buy-in and as you said there has been so far and for me cutting has been another important element of that Gordon has played with a four spacing big who could pass before but Jokic's orders of magnitude better than Vooch um and and also like yeah the defensive fit has looked very good so far and as they continue to continue to play we'll see if it if it continues on continues on that form but yeah the Nuggets have been far better than I anticipated and that doesn't mean they're going to be this good forever but that does mean they have been this good so far and that is in it is a useful data point if not a a permanent one and I, I think that that is 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 important when you think about kind of where the West is going and I think that's the kind of another piece of the context here is whether you want to attribute some of it to the Lakers having all these injuries and falling off and some of the teams that grind up with the best records are, you know, not not proven in the playoffs in the sense of like, you know, they have good players and I mean like Chris Paul has done succeed in the playoffs and everything else, but the you know, the Jazz and the Suns, I think they have a lot of potential and then well, you know the Clippers are the Clippers. So I think the West is it's it's definitely unambiguously more open than I thought it was going to be at the start of the year. Um, mm. And how much of that is more just being prisoners of the moment? You know, is the, like, this Lakers stuff, I mean, as long as LeBron and AD make it back, then they're not going to be the team they are right now, not even close to it. And I think that they can, I don't think home court matters to them. But there is more of a, even with all that, there is more of a window than I thought there was. And that is very good news for the Jazz. It is very good news for the Suns. It is very good news for the Nuggets. I agree with that. And I don't know that we're necessarily being prisoners of the moment as we are like prisoners to the concept of injuries. Like, you know, um, the Clippers haven't been all healthy at the same time, basically all season. So it's hard to say, like, this is what the Clippers are. This is what we expect the Clippers to be. You know, the Lakers obviously have had LeBron and AD out for a little bit now. LeBron's still out for a little while. AD's supposedly coming back pretty soon. But, you know, you never know with his injury. It's like that lower calf Achilles area. Like, who knows what he's going to look like when he comes back. He did look like 10% off even when he was playing for most of the year. Um, So it's hard to know what – like, even if we see LeBron and AD both in the playoffs, are they going to be the LeBron and AD – that we know. Like, I think we can expect if LeBron's on the court, he's going to be LeBron. We've never seen him on the court with the exception of, like, two games against Dallas in 2011. We've never seen him on the court and not be, like, 
the best player in the league for like 15 years at this point. But it's hard to know what you're going to get from AD, and it's hard to know what you're going to get from any of the Clippers at any given time or who's even going to be on the floor for them. And then you look at, you know, I think the Jazz and the Suns have been the two best teams in the West for most of the season. And, you know, like you said, the, this, the Jazz team in particular has not had a ton of postseason success yet. I think they've won, what, like one postseason series these last few years? Most of the time they've been a first round out. Um, the Suns haven't been to the playoffs in 10 years. And, you know, Chris Paul has had a lot of individual postseason success, not a lot of team postseason success. You know, Jay Crowder has had some more. But other than that, like, who on that team has gone on postseason runs before? Um, like, only Campaign or Langston Galloway has, and certainly none of the younger guys there have. So just in the sense that the two teams that we thought would be the favorites have significant injury questions at the moment – and in the bigger term, and then the two teams that have been the best teams throughout most of the season have questions of, like, what does this actually look like in the playoffs for them? You know, we know some of what the Jazz look like in the playoffs. I think they've been a lot better this year than they were last year. Some of that has to do with Mike Conley being healthy. Some of that has to do with Derek Favors being back um, and, and Boyan not being hurt this year like he was in the bubble. So I do think they're a better team than they were a year ago, but I think we also still have the same questions. Like who do they have to guard big wings? Like is Royce O'Neal up to that challenge by himself? And then what do they do when defenses switch against them? Like, is it just Donovan Mitchell ISOs for the entire game? Because if it is, that's probably not like, you're not going to win with Donovan Mitchell ISOs against Kawhi ISOs or LeBron ISOs. Like, I'm sorry. The other team's going to beat you in that situation. So they got to have something else there. So I think there are questions about them too, you know. So it does seem like it's more open, but I don't know if it's a prisoner of the moment thing so much as it's a combination of like everything that has happened to the moment. Yeah, that's a, a great distinction to make. And for for the Jazz, so they've they've made two second rounds in the la- in the previous four years, but it's worth noting the first of those teams, 16-17, like Donovan Mitchell wasn't even on that team. You know, there mm-hmm. there are holdovers to be sure. I mean, Gobert was a was a regular starter on that team. Joe Ingles was actually a key part. Derek Favors was. But in terms of like the kind of well, the modern vintage, it, I don't think of that as a, you know, it's a spiritual brethren, but I don't think of it as like the same team or anything in that form. And then, of course, they made it the next year as well. And Donovan started on that team. So more mm-hmm. similar to to the current one. But yeah, it is a it is a real challenge, and it is also going to inevitably, seemingly at least at this point, because of how bunched in different places these teams are, lead to some gamesmanship. Let's call it that late in the season, because in this year in particular, I mean there is a I mean there's always in modern in the modern era there's been a difference, a significant one between the regular season and the playoffs for a bunch of different reasons, but. It is reasonable to believe that this year, especially when you consider how jam-packed the second half is, that the regular season is going to be fundamentally different than the playoffs. And so I can imagine that teams are going to focus more on who are we playing and how are they playing rather than I want to get the best seed possible. And I mean, the Lakers potentially falling below five, I mean, falling below the five complicates that a lot. And there's also the challenge of how 
like how malleable are those things? Because you know, you know that there will be teams that want to be in a specific place, but you have to, you can't really know that more than a couple of days, maybe a week ahead. So does you know Phoenix separate a little bit? Does Denver keep on this tear and maybe separate separate themselves? It's going to be really really interesting. Yeah, the Lakers thing is uh, what I was going to mention. Like that's going to be a huge. Like there's going to be so much sneaky tanking in the last week of the season to just try to avoid that first round matchup. And I think that might be a little bit misguided. I think you would rather play them in the first round than the second round. Like, yeah, knowing they're not going to that, be... That's a really interesting idea. I, I used to say this in terms of the Rockets and the Warriors, like that you, you'd you rather play, like as the Rockets, you'd rather play the Warriors early than late because, you know, there was this whole thing about Harden generally playing worse the longer the playoffs went on. And and uh, and the idea that if they made it that there is a possibility that the team doesn't make it that far, but generally speaking, they those teams are. But the health component of this now, it's possible that we'll have had a month plus of healthy Anthony Davis at that point. It's possible mm-hmm. we'll have had maybe a few weeks of healthy LeBron at that point, but we also might not have. And I think that also gets at the idea, which is is so interesting. Like I I, I use the phrase a lot of defining success. And this is a different analog, but you could think of it as the similar idea, which is if your goal is to make the, let's say to make the NBA finals, you're pretty much going to have to go through a similar slate. Now there can be more extreme ones like that year when three of the four best teams in the Western conference were on the same side of the bracket. Like there are those circumstances from time to time, but generally speaking, you know, it's it's going to be a pretty similar set of teams overall. Maybe you have a weaker, maybe you're facing a 7-8 and it's not the Lakers and they're a little bit worse. But other than that, it's going to be, you know, pretty similar. And so then on that logic, you you could go to the idea of like you'd rather if your if your goal is to make the finals, you'd rather play the Lakers early than late. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's more just the injury thing for me. Right. Like you and, and I think with the the Rockets and Warriors, it might have been like the Rockets specifically would want to play them when they're fresher, just right. because it was not a particularly deep team to begin with. Mike D'Antoni was not going more than like seven guys in the rotation. On top of that, and like Harden specifically was a guy who you know, as you mentioned, tended to slow down as he went deeper into the playoffs. Whereas you know, with the Lakers, like you're going to have to go through them at some point. I would imagine in the West. Um, I don't think you're imagining that, like, you know, if we avoid them in the first round, maybe someone else beats them. Like, I don't think you can just assume the Lakers are going to lose. It it could happen, but you don't plan on it happening. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be going around assuming that LeBron's going to lose a playoff series. That just generally doesn't happen very often. So, you know, to me, it's like, is AD still a little bit gimpy? Have they gotten their rhythm yet with AD and Drummond playing together? You know, is Dennis Schroeder still upset from the trade deadline? Like, I'd rather be playing with all that stuff hanging over them than, like, after they've summarily dispatched back-to-back opponents in the first two rounds. Yeah, it's definitely a a worthwhile concept. And But, by the way, they could, like, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they drop to the plan, right? Like, Oh, it's it's possible. I mean, I think that... If Davis comes back on the sooner side, 
I think that the Lakers will be good enough to kind of tread water because there is a decent amount of separation. So right now the Lakers are 30 and 18 as we're recording this. So that's 12 games over 500. The Blazers are close, but then next up is Dallas. Dallas is 25 and 21. So that is... So like that's a pretty big margin and it it's true like if this if the dual absences persists, you know, let's call it another 2 weeks. Like if if that goes another 2 weeks and that margin cuts down to like 2 or 3 games, then we we start to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And remember like the Lakers their only two wins in the last little while were against the Cavs and the Magic. This is not set up for them to like be be great necessarily but they have a couple games like they so let's say ad gets back in time for april 12th they have the knicks which will be a different kind of challenge they have the hornets then on a back-to-back but then they, they also play a bunch of big teams and what i would be circling kind of as the what might be the clarification point here is that going later in the month of april they play two games in dallas April 22nd and April 24th. Well, we don't know which Lakers are going to be available by that point, but if Dallas wins both of those, then I think we'll start we'll start to feel like, oh, and I mean, by that point, we'll be about 10 games from the end of the season. So we'll know a lot. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. But it's it's also like, does it really matter to them? Like, if they're in the play-in, like, they're not, they're not dropping to 9 or 10. Like, that's just too far. It's too far, yeah. Like, do we really think they're going to lose? Like, LeBron is going to lose two straight games to, like, the Spurs and the Grizzlies? Like, Right, especially when you think about that if they fall to seven, that presumably means, like, the Mavericks and the Blazers move up. And so the teams that will be the most dangerous in a theoretical play-in situation are not in the play-in. Right. So I'm not sure it matters too much. And, like, Maybe they would rather play the Suns or the Jazz than the Clippers or the Nuggets in the first round. Well, you and, know? and there's an interesting idea that having a kind of a warm-up game isn't the worst thing in the world for the Lakers. If they if they're coming in a little bit cold, you know, like if their guys are there, that it's a game that you can work your way in. The opponent's not nearly as good as you, but starting starting slow doesn't sink you the way that it might in a game one against the Jazz. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Um... I don't know. I'm like I find it hard to be too worried about them. The Lakers. But, uh, I, I agree. Yeah. Well, so, but it's also just like we don't know what they're going to look like or when, just because there's a you know pretty significant degree of uncertainty regarding when two of the you know small handful of best players in the league are going to get back on the court, and at least what one of them is going to look like when he does. Like I think we can pretty safely say LeBron's out there. Like, we should expect LeBron. I don't know what we should expect when AD gets back on the court. Also, like, I mean, it's how long, even if he's right, how do we know how long he's going to be right? Like, that is a, that is an, a factor in as well. Like, maybe AD's playing at 100%, but he's not able to play as many minutes or something else. Like, that could be a big factor. And to use a, a legal term, I think of what's been going on for them as a big and important superseding intervening force. And what I mean by that is the concerns that I had about this Lakers team structurally before this season 
haven't truly been resolved in my book yet. You know, like whether that's can Dennis Schroeder carry the offense when LeBron is off the floor? Can will teams attack him aggressively enough defensively that it creates seams that were not there as much last year because they had a stronger defensive foundation? How do their wing defenders look? And you know, there's the the reporting that they're looking for a three and D wing on the buyout market, and good luck with that. I mean, it is a very difficult thing to find when you have the mid level exception, much less when you have the minimum. And there hasn't been a clear, you know, great buyout player or anything like that. So all of those things, all of those concerns are still there. And I would tie in also that the Lakers are at their best when Anthony Davis is at center and LeBron's at the four. And they've thrown so many resources into other configurations. And so you wonder what Frank Vogel is, what Frank Vogel is going to do, what, uh, you know, like how, how the, how these rotations are going to work. And so obviously those are not the big problems right now, like getting, getting healthy, getting your best players back. But those things are those things are still concerns for me, and it's also particularly interesting because as as things broke and you know no no shame on the Lakers they they beat everyone who was in front of them and did most of it in convincing style. But those same concerns, I thought they had better talent for a lot of those things last year, and those were not really the ways they were tested last year. Yeah, I would say I have the same concerns that I had about them as the start of the season and the same degree of trust in LeBron to alleviate them essentially by himself. Yeah, that's totally, that totally fair. Um, you know, so it's like in the end it's going to come down to like can LeBron make up for whatever weaknesses they have or can he not? And that's basically the way it's been with every LeBron team for the last forever. And like I would say in general – the answer is almost always yes, um, and it's just a matter of can he do it enough in the context of one specific series. Something I want to jump to while we're still in the West is something that Nate and I have discussed a little bit over the last couple of weeks. We actually got asked it in a, in a chat a little while ago, is kind of comparing the, the Jazz and the Suns knowing what we know right now. And so basically the way that I was, the way that I've phrased this, and I'll just, instead of giving it to you, I'll just pose it my way and you can say whether you agree or not, is that if you threw every Western Conference playoff team into a big, onto a roulette wheel and you spun the wheel and you said, and you're like, okay, you have to play whatever team pops up. While there are absolutely mm-hmm. matchups where I would prefer having the Jazz and, and Quinn Snyder and everything else, I think... In that construct, there are more teams where I'd rather have the Suns roster than the the Jazz roster. In terms of playing against them, or which team you'd rather go with? I I would rather I would rather be backing the Suns. You know, like I rather if I had to put my chips on one team, not knowing who the opponent was, just because I think they have more. I think they have more defensive versatility. I think that. Their offense is harder to, to bog down because they have multiple creators and they have guys that are really dynamic. Um, and because they have they have a, an interesting version of depth, you know, like they can go with the charge at center thing. They have a bunch of different front court guys um, and the backcourt. They have they don't have a ton of different like table setters. No two is more than most teams have, but they have a lot of other players that can fit in in the mix. And so with Utah. I don't see as much malleability, as much versatility with them. And if it works, it works really well. But if it doesn't, I'm I'm less confident. It's a it's a really interesting question. Um, it, because it's so context dependent. Like, right? There are certain teams like I just would not want to have the Jazz roster against. Like, if you're playing the Blazers or the Clippers, 
like I don't want the Jazz roster specifically, or honestly, if we're playing the Suns, I don't really want the Jazz roster either, because the two guys that have killed the the Jazz style drop defense the most over the years are Chris Paul and Paul George, because they're the league's best snakers of pick and rolls, um, where they come around the screen and just like essentially back up while their man is coming over and walk themselves right into a wide open jumper that they hit every time. Um, so I wouldn't want to be either of the, I wouldn't want the jazz against either of those two teams. And then like, you know, I, I would imagine we're going to talk about this Dame story I wrote the other day. At some point we can sort of transition into it a little bit at this point, but like if you're playing anything but blitz on Dame Lillard pick and rolls, like, you know? Um, so Yeah. Yeah, let's get to the the Lillard piece that you wrote for Five Thirty Eight. I really enjoyed it, and it it I won't I won't necessarily say it focused on, but I thought one of the important elements of it was the idea of vertical spacing, not in the sense of like, okay, where can you shoot from in the geometry of the floor? Something our mutual friend Seth Partner has talked about a lot, but in terms of screen setting and the idea that setting a screen higher, while not great for every team, it opens up elements for Portland's attack that are significantly more difficult if those screens are set closer to the basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say in general, it's not the best strategy for most teams. Like league-wide, the things I'm talking about from like 30-plus feet out, pick-and-roll that include those type of screens are generally less efficient than when the screen is set closer to the rim. Um, and that's even slightly the case for the Blazers. But the way, like, the difference between Lillard's efficiency on deep screens and the league average is even greater than it is between lowered efficiency on closer screens and the league average specifically because he's like, he's got the best shooting percentage in the league on those super deep threes, like deeper than 28 feet. Um, uh, we use the aggression plus metric that Krishna Narsu and I created last season to show that basically defenses are playing more aggressive pick and roll defense against the Blazers and Lillard specifically this season than any team in the league and the fourth most aggressive defense of the last eight years. And it's all because, you know, Dame is such a threat, no matter how, like, he's a step over half court and he just walks into a three. There's really nothing you could do if you don't blitz it. Like, again, good luck. You know, it's over a point per possession. 1.2, it was like 1.26 or something like that, points per possession on those plays. And it's like... It's the most efficient offense in the history of the league, you know? Um, so basically, defenses are doing all this, going all out to stop him because no matter what he does on the pick and roll, it's so efficient. And the Blazers' answer has just been like to move their pick and rolls back even further and bring the defense even further out on the floor. And Dame's like the only guy that can make that an efficient proposition at this point, basically. So that's something where the Jazz, for example, that we're just talking about, they're not going to do that. They're not going to have Rudy Gobert blitz Dane Lillard 35 feet from the rim. It's just not their system, you know? Um, And if they don't do that, like, okay, he's going to walk into a 28-footer trip after trip down the floor, and it's going to be like, what are they doing? And, like, can you pull Rudy Gobert off the floor? Not really. Like, what else are you doing? It's not like Favors is jumping out there, you know? So... You know, like I said, there are certain matchups I wouldn't want them, um, but there are others that I might. Like, if we're going against, like, let's say you're in the finals and you're playing the Sixers, I think I'd rather the Jazz roster. Same. 
I mean, there is a possibility that some of the Sixers configurations could gum up their attack, but generally speaking, I think that would, I, I think that the Jazz roster would be better, especially just because having a couple of guys to go after Embiid and just players who can affect everything that they like to do around the rim, and they have a lot of other capable defenders that aren't going to be challenged as much because the Sixers don't have those same threats like what we were talking about with the, our concerns with the Jazz. Those guys just don't really exist in the same form on Philly. One of the other things I thought was compelling about the piece um, was, generally speaking, you know, going back in the, in the piece, you go back to thirteen fourteen, screens are happening further away from the basket, but it has been a slow progression throughout the league, but it has not been a slow progression for Portland specifically, and it, that makes a world of sense. Yeah, so basically the the average screen for the league has gone from, like, in 13-14, it was 22.7 feet away from the rim, and this year it's 24 feet from the rim. So it's moved about, you know, 1.3 feet back, um, you know, like a foot, a foot and four, 16 inches back on the floor, basically. Um, Lillard's average screen started already even further away from the rim than the average screen this year. He started at 24.7, so about two and a half feet further than the average screen in the league in 13-14. And this year, he's getting the farthest screens that anybody has gotten in the second spectrum era, which, again, goes eight years. His average screen is coming 28.9 feet away from the rim, which is, you know, 4.9 feet further than the average screen in the league. And, like, the difference used to be about, about like, two feet, and now it's, like, almost five feet. So yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and if you think about it, like there are a lot of different ways, and you talked about this in the piece with some video, that Lillard can take advantage of that, whether it's setting up teammates and having more space for them to operate, or if Lillard can, you know, get a, get through the blitz, figure out, you know, faint, get somebody else, then he has an advantage with more space to operate. They're like, doing it. And because in a normal circumstance, you you the you wouldn't do it just because the other team wouldn't respect it. But with Lillard, you have to, and so that's what opens up these other avenues. Yeah, I mean, like when you have a guy that can pull up from that deep, it just kind of doesn't matter what you do. And so, doing the most aggressive thing to make other players do something to beat you is generally the best thing to do. But even that is like still not good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anything else on the West, or do you want to transition to the Eastern Conference? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I find super interesting about the West. Um, what do you think of that the, the Clippers, um, Lou Williams, Rondo deal? Like, I'm not of the mind that you know Rondo is all of a sudden the single difference maker for them, um, but I also think it kind of makes sense, like. The thing about Lou Williams is, you know, as as good as he is for you in the regular season, once you get deep into the playoffs, and especially in certain playoff matchups, he basically can't be on the court because he's such a big defensive liability. Like, it's just every single trip down the court, LeBron is putting his guy in a pick and roll until you take him off the floor. Um, and that's an issue, you know? And, and I don't think it's an issue in the same way with Rondo, specifically. So it's not like Rondo is the difference maker for me and like why they're now going to win the title or something like that. But I do think that one switch is pretty helpful. After last year's playoffs, a way that I've been thinking about Rondo is that 
it's a real roll of the dice what version of Rondo you're going to get. And I don't think it's as basic as national TV slash playoff Rondo and everything else. I mean, health is a huge variable. His quality of play changed a lot during the playoffs. Like, he was so much better after the first round. But what Rondo gives you conceptually is another another way to operate that Lou Williams does not. Like, I think the limitations for Lou are a good way of thinking about it, but also the idea that at his best, Rondo does a pretty good job of checking a lot of boxes while not leaving a lot of things just totally left wanting. And Nate said this for years, I think going back to like DeMar DeRozan is where he kind of articulated the first time of that in many ways, the playoffs are more about the severity of your weaknesses rather than the severity of your strengths, just because mm-hmm. giving, giving opponents places to attack and everything else like that, like that in many ways matters more because teams are so good at taking away what you want to do in the first place. And that was something that I had to grapple with last year with the Clippers. I was, I was bullish on them and that didn't work out super well. And part, but part of what gave me concerns was that Lou Williams could hit those points where he isn't necessary offensively and is just makes things so easy for the other team on when they're on offense. And that's not changing like that. That's the way Lou Williams is a wonderful player, but that's just a part of his story. And so, and that's not necessarily a part of Rondo's. Now there's also a possibility that Rondo is completely unplayable, whether that's because he's unhealthy or because he's just not fully engaged or that some of these other kind of things rear their heads. But if it's, you know, like a one in three or a one in six chance, that's something you didn't have before. And and also the other wrinkle of this from the Clippers perspective, which is so different from Atlanta, is like that was something I said is like that that deal was far better for the Hawks than it was for the Clippers, just because Rondo the, that whole theory I just said of Rondo doesn't make sense with the Hawks and does with the Clippers. But also <clears> for the weird quirk that Rondo has a two year contract and as long as Steve Ballmer doesn't care how much the team costs, sure. You know, like that's, it's, I've referred to it before as like kind of a, a, a second mid-level exception. Like if you just get somebody who makes around that type of money and your owner's willing to pay it, then you can use the mid-level exception on something else. And now some teams just don't spend it, you know, like that's, that's not a, a luxury that a lot have. And that's one of the reasons ownership is such a big competitive advantage, but for the Clippers, it is. So I, I think that that is an important, an important takeaway of this experience for me. The only other thing that I'm really interested in Yeah, I want to just quickly touch on the point you mentioned oh, sure. that, that you and Nate have talked about, about you know how the, deep, uh, the playoffs is more about the degree of your weaknesses than the degree of your strengths. Basically what the playoffs have come down to over the last, I don't know, maybe five years or so is like, do you have a player who can be targeted – on defense or a system that can be targeted on defense? And do you have a player that can be left open on offense without any punishment coming to the other team? And that's like not the only thing that's mattered, but it's been like the deciding factor in most of the playoffs over the last few years. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's interesting. And it's obviously not as high impact as those top teams. The only other quick thing in the West is how the seeding, let's call it eight and beyond, how that shakes out and how the results affect teams' decision-making. That's something I talked about with uh, Rob Mahoney last week was this idea of interpretation. So it, if the Pelicans get the nine and make the playoffs, that means something very different to them than if the Kings do it or the somehow the Thunder do it or something else. And so how that changes the 2021 offseason, the 2022 offseason, and everything in between is going to be fascinating. Yeah, that's um, 
it's a trap that a lot of teams fall into right a lot of times um and it's like one of the most dangerous things that when, can happen when the to fun- a team. when the functional difference between the 8 seed the 8th best record and the 11th best record in the west is very minimal and the actual record difference might be minimal yeah um i think back to like for example um i remember like exactly where i was when it happened the 2006-07 Knicks moved into eighth place in the Eastern Conference for one day, and James Dolan gave Isaiah Thomas a contract extension. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing can right. really screw with your team for a while. But let's jump to the East. Um, I, again, Like to me, the, one of the big takeaways was that the best didn't get much better. We'll we'll see he we'll see what George Hill does for the Sixers. You know that's still TBD and Embiid is hopefully coming back this weekend. So I'm excited to see him on the floor. KD, you know, hopefully soonish. So the East is I think the East is going to be closer to right sooner than the West. But the biggest trade at the deadline for me in terms of you know like especially the treasure given up was Vooch going to the Bulls and yes. It was probably difficult, if you know, difficult if not impossible, to foresee Levine missing this time and the Bulls losing losing games and and all of that. But it it is a reminder at the same point, and this isn't why I think it was a bad move for the Bulls. There are a bunch of reasons why I think that, but a reminder that when your margins are razor thin, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's fair or not. Yeah, and I think also like when you're specifically making a trade to improve your playoff chances this season and something happens immediately after that deproves is not the word that I'm looking for. What's the word that, um, Disproves? why am I like drawing a blank? Um, that hurts them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, then, you know, that factors in like as much as it might not be quote unquote fair, that's just kind of the way it is. Like it makes the trade look worse, even if it was not worse, you know, like, yeah, that's well. And it, it also, I mean, it makes it a lot better for the magic. If that pick is a, is a lottery one, not, not saying that it's going to be this like crazy elite pick or anything like that, but also, I mean, this, there's this huge dynamic in bulls land and everything else of, you know, like, how long is this group really going to be together? And Zach Levine has this year and next year under contract, and he will be extension eligible. And we'll see which kind of extension, because he could technically qualify as a designated veteran if Levine makes an All-NBA team. But I think he's maybe fighting it out for the last spot or two, depending on how a couple guys' positions are defined. And if he doesn't, the Bulls, the other way that they could get a deal done outside of the normal extension rules would be uh, a renegotiate and extend. And that requires cap space, which is less likely for the Bulls now that they made this trade. Like that, it is. I'm not going to say it's impossible because it is technically possible. It just would be very difficult, and they would lose some depth that would make them less likely to be good as good next year. Yeah, I do think they have some cap space still to be able to do it, but I also think they probably don't want to do the renegotiate and extend. Um, and that's pretty rare too, right? How many guys have been renegotiated and extended? Very point? few. Um, Covington is probably the most prominent example. Um, and there are a few, there are a few others because one of the big challenges is that it has to be somebody who's good enough and where it makes a difference. And like also where the other extension rules are insufficient. So you kind of need, you need all three things to happen at once. And those three things generally don't. 
Yeah, it's got to be like a guy who's good enough to merit it, coming off a small enough contract. Um, yeah, which, yeah, but not necessarily. Yeah, it's it's a very narrow pool of players who would even be eligible to begin with, um, because most of the time you're not going to have like the cap space, and it's also like your team's got to not want to use the cap space on somebody else, right? You know, and that's pretty rare too. Yeah, and so in some ways it's actually more beneficial if you have a modest amount of cap space as opposed to having a, a not if you have a ton you're probably fine to do multiple things, but if you have like let's say 20 million to work with, then there are a lot of teams to be like, well, we could get we could get another player that's going to really help us a lot. So the the opportunity cost of giving Zach Levine that kind of money is much more significant. And so that can be a that can be a challenge in those as well. Honestly, it wouldn't be that surprising if they traded for a guy to eat into the cap space so they didn't have to give him an extension. Um, like, I wouldn't put that past the Bulls. Although, I guess it's a new management team with the Bulls. But I wouldn't put it past Reinsdorf. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a circumstance that... I, I mean, I'm not saying that's definitively why the Bucks did what they did. But I think being hard-capped... With the cap being so close to the with the with the hard cap being so close to the luxury tax line, basically ensuring that a team can't have a big tax bill, I wouldn't be stunned if there were times that that was used tactically to give ownership cover. <laughs> oh man, the luxury tax—it's uh, it affects way too much of the league. I would say. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is such a wonderful example, and there are so many, of unintended consequences because the idea— Oh, you mean to tell me that something the owners came up with to work as a punishment mechanism for something they didn't like actually punished people that they weren't intending to punish? Yeah. That has I mean, never happened never. in the history of basketball. I can't believe that you would say that that would happen at any point. It's incredible, and it's incredible that— it it keeps on happening in different ways and then just develops in exactly the way that it that that was always a possibility something that i've been grappling with in the east is you have all these teams kind of on the lower end that are all currently really close to each other in terms of record and the lottery odds have been flattened pretty significantly so the downside of being a little bit better is is pretty muted. I mean, it's still better to, you know, ha- if, if you're going to be bad, it's better to be really bad than to be kind of bad. But I'm very interested in how those teams at the bottom, defining it however we want to, how they see it and how hard they push. Like, I think Detroit's going to keep going for it. Now, we'll, we'll see if we'll see what happens in terms of player availability and everything else. Like, this is not the most talented roster, at least at, at the moment, but probably for the rest of the year. Cleveland's a calibrator there. The the Wizards are a really interesting one. I mean, Beal's missed time right now, but like all of them are close enough to the 10 that they could quote unquote go for it. But what might end up just happening there is see where you are two, three weeks out. Just try until then and then just see where you are. Yeah, and I think a mistake that people make when it comes to the lottery odds is focusing only on the odds of what pick you land as opposed to how low you can drop yes, in the lottery. That's a great point. That is the benefit of having the worst record in the league as opposed to the fourth worst record in the league. Just look at what happened a couple of years ago with the Knicks where they had the worst record in the league and, you know, the Cavs and who else was it up there with them? The, the Suns maybe? 
I can't remember. Who, yeah, it was the Suns, and then the Suns moved down again in the draft. And they actually wound up with Cam Johnson, which worked out pretty well, but that was not what originally happened for them. So the, the Knicks, Cavs, and Suns all have the same lottery odds, but the Knicks only dropped down to three, and the Cavs dropped down to, what would they go to, four or five, where they get Darius Garland? Um and then I believe, and then and then the Suns I think were six, and then that's the pick that they that yeah they traded down with. with uh, yeah, um, and you know the Knicks wound up with R.J. Barrett, which now looks pretty good for them. You know, um, so that's the benefit. It's not like having the best odds at the number one pick, which is beneficial, but the the, the actually you get is that you can't. Yeah, and it's it's good to remember, and it can really it can really affect it, and especially in certain ways in a draft where it kind of looks. I haven't studied the guys yet, but it kind of looks like there's a five player group, and then maybe a drop off there. So ensuring that you have a top five pick matters more this year, arguably, than in other years where maybe the drop off was at three or at four or wherever else. So that just could, don't trade your pick with only top three protection because you think it's a three player draft when Damian Lillard's in the draft and he's going number six. Oh boy. Um, but let's let's get to the Knicks. I mean, it was interesting. You and I the last time we talked, I think that was in late January. We we talked about this idea that even if the Knicks opponent shooting regresses to the mean, there's still at least a like a league average defense here, and that's a remarkable success for Tom Thibodeau and the and the players, and of course everything else. It hasn't regressed yet, and I mean that has been such an important part of their success now, and ideally moving forward. Yeah, I think specifically their ability to not necessarily suppress shots at the rim because other teams get a decent amount of shots there, but I do think it makes a lot of sense that their opponents finishing at the rim is not very good. Right. Um, you know, they have Mitchell Robinson from the moment he stepped into the league has been a very good rim protector. He's been hurt a lot throughout the year, but when he's in, it makes sense to finish with the rim. Nerlens Noel, when he's in, it makes sense that opponents don't finish well around the rim. And even Taj Gibson, it makes sense when he's in, opponents don't finish well around the rim. So constructing a defense, like even if you allow a bunch of shots at the rim to not finish well there, um, it makes sense for them. The thing that you would expect to regress that hasn't yet is their opponents just shooting horrendously from three, even though they get a ton of threes, um, and they just keep shooting poorly. And, like, some of that is a degree of luck, but you know what? Every good defense has some degree of luck. And if yours is three-point shooting luck, like, okay, you know? Like, although now I think – oh, no, I'm looking at offense, actually. Yeah, their opponents are still taking a ton of shots from three. They are. Um, Fifth most in the league in terms of a percentage of their shots. And they're shooting the worst in the league from three, like six or three and a half percent worse than average, which is not an enormous difference in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, I think at this point, like you would expect the Knicks are one of the like definitively one of the five to ten best defenses in the league, which is absolutely wild. Um, It really is. Like, I I can't believe it, really. Although, you know, when I did Nate's podcast before the season, we did say, like, it's more likely for them to be an above-average defense than an above-average offense, which has held true. You know, their their offense is still, you know, their defense turns other offenses into the Knicks offense, basically, <laughs> you know. So, um, so it's not great on that end of the floor, but the defense being as good as it is, like, I think at this point, I was talking to my friend the other day who, like, we've been talking throughout the season, like, you know, if they're going to make, like, the play-in game, wouldn't you rather just not make the play-in game? 
and get, you know, a little bit of a better chance in the lottery or like, but at this point, you know, they're in like the four five, six range more than the seven, eight range. So I was talking to him and I said, basically like, I think at this point you would have to say, even if projection systems say, some projection systems say differently right now, I think it's more likely than not that they make the playoffs at this point, because not only would they have to drop down to the play-in game, they would also then likely have to lose twice in the play-in round to not make it because they're like three games, I think, ahead of where they'd have to get to the nine seed to only lose once in the play-in round and be out. And like to be this deep into the season, I think we're two-thirds of the way into the season, and they're more likely than not to make the playoffs just based on the combination of things that needs to happen is crazy to me. Like, well, there's, there's a very funny way to know that we're a third of the way through the Knicks season. The Knicks are 24 and 24 and have 24 games left. There you go. <laughs> like, I, just I've, never, I've, never had, I've never had math that easy to do. <laughs> yeah, just the fact that they are 500 two-thirds of the way through the season. Like, I would have said you were crazy before the... I think I predicted them to have, like, the fourth-worst record in the league. Yeah, and that was that was a reasonable a reasonable thing to do. Like, I, I was intrigued by their rim protection, and I was discouraged that by their offensive potential, and their offense hasn't been great. I mean, I would argue that it's actually been better than I anticipated. I mean, they're... It absolutely has been. They've been, what, like, the 23rd-ranked offense in the league or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I think like, they're currently... Julius Randle becoming, like diet Jokic is the only reason they're not like one of the worst offenses in the league. Well, and that's what's interesting in terms of it's a way of thinking about value that I'm not saying in terms of like most valuable player or anything like that, but it's, you know, VORP, you know, value over replacement player. And Mm -hmm. so the idea that Julius Randle is like making the Knicks offense great, no, but he's making them a whole lot better than they would have been. And that, and that matters a lot. And it also like the Randall initiation element mm-hmm. also makes I think it makes their potential like some of their guard rotation stuff a lot more compelling. Like I've been like my belief is that the way that this should go for the rest of the season and next season is that you start Barrett, Randall, and quickly. I think quickly unlocks some things in those units because he could space the four, but he doesn't have to be ball dominant, and that would work really well. You've talked about this before as well, and. You don't have to do everything in one shot. It doesn't have to be, oh, you know, coach is too set in their ways or do all this stuff. But I, I do want to see it a lot more than we have. Yeah, I, you know, I do think Thibodeau is a little bit too set in his ways to do that. I do think it has been detrimental to them. I think Sharks wrote about it earlier in the season where, like, one of the reasons quickly has been able to be as good as he has as a rookie is because Randall has been that kind of playmaker this year. You know, quickly, if he was just like having to be the point guard, really, when he's out there, wouldn't be as good as he's been this year because that's not like the ideal role for him. By the way, Randall Barrett quickly, for some reason, has played only 253 minutes this season. You mean Randall Randall quickly, Barrett? Yeah, Randall Barrett quickly. Um, And they're plus 54 in 253 minutes. Wow. And I think on the season as a whole, they're like plus – Four. Yeah, I mean, their 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 net rating is basically even. Yeah, so basically, they played like two thousand minutes with that trio not on the court together, and they're like minus thirty eight. Um, but for some reason, played like I don't know, was it three fifty divided by like twenty three hundred? 
some quick math. They, that trio has only been on the floor for like 15% of the team's minutes. Um, and it, it, it makes a ton of sense just like as a conceptual trio to put those guys in position to succeed. They also just like – you can't be a good offense in the modern NBA taking as few threes as this team does. It's just really not possible. Um, and quickly, obviously, is their highest volume – three-point shooter you know maybe Bullock is catching up now that he's actually shooting the ball but um yeah you know like I, I do think that there's merit to like he's a rookie who's having success in a specific role like why don't we just keep him there for now but I think going forward you know if Tibbs is similarly reluctant to play him big minutes and with his two best players who desperately need shooting next to them at a certain point you just can't give him other options that can't shoot. Like you can't give him Alfred Payton and Derek Rose and Neil Aquina to play next to those guys over quickly. Like just give him different guards, you know? Yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it's unfortunate that we haven't gotten to see it as much. Um, and there's still plenty of time, but I'm really, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing more PJ Tucker on the bucks. You know, just how this works, what what approaches Budenholzer wants to go to. But there's still time. And so I'm not going to – I'm I'll lament it because I just want to see more of it, but there's time. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, before we get to the rest of these, there's one more thing I want to talk about with the Knicks, which I think sure. is um, – it's an interesting question. So Mitchell Robinson this summer, they can either um, decline his option and make him a restricted free agent this summer, and then that ensures that they won't lose him, or – they can pick up his option, keep him on the roster next season at a lower price point than he would get in a contract this year, and then have him be an unrestricted free agent next offseason. And I would think at that point you're probably going to lose him because you just like intentionally kept him at a lower number for a year when he presumably wants an extension. And I was thinking about it the other day. I think I would rather just keep him at the lower number for a year and lose him for nothing after next season if you can't trade him during the year, then give him like a 15-ish million dollar a year extension. Like, look at the way that they've played on both offense and defense with him out and Nerlens Noel in there. And Nerlens Noel was available for free this summer, basically. They got him for a year and $5 million. Like, the Kings are paying Rashawn Holmes $5 million this year, like... If you don't have a star at center, it's just not worth it to pay them big money, especially if they're not like an offensive creator. Like the skill set is so readily available. Like, and, and I think that that's why it makes sense that they were poking around centers at or near the deadline. Like, I don't think Andre Drummond would have been a good fit, but there was like a brief Miles Turner rumor that made a ton of sense to me. Oh um, yeah, I'd lo- I'd love Miles Turner on the Knicks. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so. First of all, just as a point of clarification, there are some middle grounds. Like it could even be something where they decline the option and then agree to whether you want to call it an extension or new contract without him going through the process. That's also a possibility. They could also pick up the option and then extend him. Like they're mm-hmm. there, but but basically all of those could be put on the branch of pre-agreement to a contract. Like that's that's right. a, it's just another path. 
the reason so agents and general managers like the these are the real situations where you know like yeah selling you know star x to come to your team is is obviously more valuable but a really important element of doing the job well is being able to calibrate based on public and distinctly not public sources to be able to calibrate players market and my first blush here is that I think the Mitchell Robinson market might be less robust just because a the, a lot of the teams that are going to have space this year just aren't super center needy. However, there are a couple and the Hornets should maybe be giving the Knicks cold sweats and that could motivate that could motivate them to do something different. But oh Mitchell they're also Robinson with LaMelo Ball. Oh my god. Right. I like getting sweat thinking about it. <laughs> but I but I get your but but there are two things. One, I totally agree with your premise that non-elite centers are more easily transferable. Now, there is a data point against that, I would argue, in terms of Clint Capella. Like, I think Capella, that that decision, I would say, from Travis Link has actually worked out pretty well. The idea that Clint Capella was better than the players that were going to be available for them in 2020 and theoretically 21, like, I think Capella has been much better. And they gave up a first, but okay, you know, like not not catastrophic for them. They had they, they had some stuff to give anyway. They have so many young guys. But you are right that if, like, let's say a Mitchell Robinson offer sheet gets up to $15 million a year, then, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, as much as I like Robinson and have liked him going back to when I watched his high school film in Louisiana, the idea that there is a superstar in there feels faint. The idea that there is a very good, you know, like even a top 10 center, yeah, I think there's a possibility, not a probability, but a possibility. But as you were saying, basically every group of center other than the very top end up being overpaid and you get into the other problem which is that overpaid centers can be very difficult to move so like let's say you end up with that contract when have the knicks ever wound up with an overpaid center that was difficult to move and when has that ever come back to bite them never 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 um so yeah so they're 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 not going to be concerned about this they'll just go after it full bore but I, I think that I think in many ways the fan base is more battle scarred on that than the, the front office. But we'll have to see. Yeah, but, well, obviously. Yeah, but, but it's but it is um, it is. It's an interesting question, like because it's a it's, really interesting question, and I think the the point that you were getting at, which is one that I generally go the other way, but I think you might be right that this is just a different scenario, is the downside risk. So the idea of like, okay, you get him for a min- minimum for a year, and then Mitchell Robinson goes somewhere else. Yeah, that sucks. You don't get you don't get an asset in return. You don't get anything else. But if you compare that to the odds that Mitchell Robinson ends up on a contract that you can't get an asset for later on, I mean, I'd say that I'd say the odds of that are pretty decent. They're not amazing, but they're pretty decent. And Robinson is intriguing he definitely has definitely has potential um he's not a certain thing in any way shape or form and i yeah i mean you know this question is just catnip for the two of us but it's it it is a it is more of a question than i thought it would be and that is really surprising and it's and for a player who is like there's volatility in his market but i think there is at least some semblance of an understanding of what he is right now yeah, even, I think even if that's right not the now, same as what like, he'll be, you know, like yeah, those are right now questions. he's a good defensive center who can contribute on offense through his vertical spacing, right? And that is a valuable player type that I just think is extremely readily available, like for five million dollars in the off season, or like as a second round pick. You know, like it's it's kind of like a running back, like 
you can just get that production for so much less money. And like, well, and maybe especially, you wanna... sorry, sorry to interrupt, but especially if you have playing time to offer, like there, there are teams yeah. that can't get that player for $5 million, but if you leave the spot open, you can. Yeah. And like, maybe, you know, every once in a while, there's going to be a guy like Clint Capella who actually is better than, you know, what you could get for $5 million. But is it more likely that Robinson is better enough than the guy you could get for $5 million to justify the extra $10 million in salary over two or three more years, or that you could get a guy who's like 90% of Robinson and then get like a $10 million guy who's like a better fit and can shoot and, and handle, which is like the things that you actually need. You know, like I just, it's an interesting discussion that's going to obviously determine, uh, you know, a significant amount of their future. Like, cause if they devote a bunch of cap space to him, then like he's sticking around and now you got to figure out how to fit Randall Barrett Robinson. Like you need to get, creators and shooters out there with them and like quickly can shoot not necessarily create Derek Rose is the guy they brought in to create you would imagine since they gave up something to trade for him they're probably going to want to resign him but he can't stay healthy and granted while he's shot well so far he's not treated like a shooter outside he's also like not really a timeline fit with those guys in terms of him moving into his mid-30s at this point like it's just there's a lot of question. There's more questions than answers in terms of how to build around those guys. Um, whereas I think if you let him go, like, and let's say Nerlens Noel is your center, or you let's say you're gonna like play Julius Randle at center and switch everything, and like, it just opens up more avenues to you. But I think like we've spent enough time on the Knicks for <laughs> the. Well, um, I actually have one more just quick thing to bring up that. Cap space in 2021 getting a lot less valuable might mean rolling it over is more likely. And if rolling it over is more likely, then that's another reason not to spend on Robinson now. Because one of the ways you could do it is theoretically, you know, he has this low cap hold, would be use the low cap hold, spend a bunch of money, and then use Robinson, you know, pay him whatever he's going to go. And then then that, you know, that doesn't count against the cap until the deal actually gets, let's call it matched in this case, if it was an offer sheet situation. And, but if you're not... Well, it wouldn't be able to be an offer sheet because he wouldn't be a restricted free agent. Well, no, what I'm saying is this year it would be, but so... Oh, I thought you meant... Uh, no, so what I mean, so what I mean is like, so if, if you're if you're going to use all your space this year, then it is kind of a bird in the hand situation of like, well, what else are you going to do? That sort of a spot. But if you weren't going to do it, or you're maybe going to roll some of that over because you don't want to... The players this year aren't good, they don't fit necessarily what you want to do. In those circumstances, then paying Robinson now is a lot less appetizing. Yeah, I thought you meant... Um in 2022. Right. And and theoretically then you'd have full bird rights so you could even do something like the Joe Harris deal. Um the, not the not, not the current Joe Harris deal, the one before that where he had a low cap hold and they agreed to they agreed to terms and then signed him last basically so they could do all these other things. Um or like Kawhi when they signed LaMarcus Aldridge, um, sure. but then you run the risk of making a guy so angry that he sits out an entire season and demands a trade to wherever. But Yeah. I don't think that that's as much of a problem with Mitch Robinson as it is with Kawhi. Slightly less. Um, so where, what else is, is interesting you in the East? I mean, sorting out the top three teams is, is definitely compelling, but I'll open it up to you. Just what's, what's been catching your eye? Um, so it's, it's the Nets, honestly. Like to me, they're like, I don't know that they're necessarily the overwhelming favorite to come out of the East. I do think they're a pretty strong favorite. And I think what they're doing at center, while it's, seems strange actually makes a lot of sense 
Like, I think that they know that when it matters, they're going to have KD, Kyrie, Harden, and Joe Harris on the floor no matter what. And they're basically just giving themselves as many different options as possible to fill that fifth spot. You know, they have like, if they want to go small and switchy, they use Bruce Brown. If they want to go, you know, small and have shooting, then they use like Landry Shamit, Luau Cabarro, or Jeff Green to still give them enough size to play center. If they want to go like big and physical, they use DeAndre. If they want to go big and switchy, they use Nick Claxton. If they need like a short roll passer, they can use Blake Griffin. If they want a guy that they can throw into the post for a mismatch, they can use LaMarcus Aldridge. Like it's basically they're just developing like a rotation at center where they just have like they're they're giving themselves like a a golf bag full of like all these different clubs and granted some of them you probably don't want to have in your bag like i don't know that you necessarily really want to have the lamarcus aldridge club because you might be tempted to use it too often uh, or or like you know that might apply to the, to the blake griffin club or the deandre jordan club but it's having them in your bag so that if you need a certain look you have it i think makes some sense like i think that they know that their best look is small generally and it's going to be like claxton or green or brown at that spot for the most part but it might not be against certain teams and having a wealth of options makes sense i had not thought about it that way but that is really useful and the golf bag analogy i think really even though i'm terrible at golf it does it does speak to me i don't play golf either my dad and my brother play all the time but (laughs) but the but the idea of you know having different things and i i would have loved a more wing-sized guy but they're hard to get you know it's it's the same Mm -hmm. thing we came up a little bit with the lakers earlier and yeah and and maybe they could have you know they it sounds like reportedly they tried to move spencer did win into deal that could have done something kind of along those lines with Ubre, or maybe there were other conversations that just haven't come out yet wouldn't surprise me but it is a it is a theory of the case that i do really like and and a lot of those like i mean of course you're gonna you you have your i'm not gonna call biases because bruce brown's been great but you know fellow hurricane bruce brown and it no it's a bias you can say it's a bias <laughs> but he's been awesome like i mean i've been, I've been yeah. it's been so fun to see him to see him really in a situation uh, when i wrote about harden earlier in the year it blew my mind the, the james harden bruce brown pick and roll is the most efficient pick and roll in the league it's incredible so having a lot of options i mean it does to an extent rely on on, on those guys staying healthy but they've also done a they've been a very good team when they have it and also, I mean, I think they've played six games with Kyrie, KD, and Harden that, all healthy. That sounds right to me. And um, and, and also, we've talked about a lot of this context for a lot of teams. Considering the health stuff that they've all, that they've gone through this year and historically, there is an argument to be made that the playoff pacing helps the Nets more than any other top end team in the league. Because you mean in terms of like how spread out the games are? Yes. Yeah. Because. Well, that's the, the thing with the Lakers, too. Right. Yeah, no back-to-backs, far less travel. And so that means they can play their best players more. That means they don't have to go to the—they don't have to use the, the bag as much, the golf club bag. So that could be very, very good for them. Um, there are a lot of other teams, you could say, the teams that don't have suitable replacements. But it—and, and, you know, like the Nets, one of the weird things that's made them so much better in the regular season— 
I mean, especially post-Harden trade with what everything that's happened, is that you don't need all three of them to be very good in the regular season, but having all three of them in the playoffs is real important. Yeah, and I mean, having the three of them is a good insulation against potentially not having one of them. You know? Exactly. Especially in the regular season. And, and I mean, I was I, I picked their under, but that also, of course, they didn't have James Harden. Then it was a possibility, but not especially. No, you're wrong. You got to accept it. You know, stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. <laughs> but I'm so... I. I I'm I'm wondering just, you know, so th- I think we know the top three in the East, and it's not as dramatic as the West in terms of, like, all of the different permutations and combinations, partially just because there isn't a Lakers in the field, I don't think, of a team that could finish fifth or worse that is just world beaters. Though, I mean, Miami made the finals last year, but... It, so that takes some of the kind of sizzle out of the seeding drama in the East, but there is still plenty to go around there with all the teams that are you know trying their hardest to get there, and the ones that um, you know are, are that not getting there would be a real failure. And I mean, I don't I don't mean that for the Raptors in terms of like Masai is going to get fired or anything silly like that, but even with everything they've done this year that that's gone wrong that was outside of their control, finishing below five hundred is he is and should be a disappointment. Yeah. I mean, they can only lose, what, like five or six more games to right. not finish below 500. So it's, I mean, it's going to happen. Um, you know, the the drama in the East is mostly like which teams are going to end up safely in the playoffs and which are going to end up in the play-in. Um, but, like, I mean, do you think there's anyone outside that top three that's even a threat to, like, make the conference finals over one of those three teams? Um, I don't I, really I think, think so. My instinct is that Miami has the best chance just because if the, their theoretical ceiling is the highest, but I wouldn't expect it. Yeah, I think, you know, if their doctors get their hands on Oladipo and he's 80 to 90 percent of what he once was instead of like the 50 to 60 percent that he's been this season, then I could see it. Um, but, but I it, do it, think it is like, going to take a lot. That's that's for sure. Yeah, it's also like. Hero hasn't been as good this year as he was in the bubble. Dragic hasn't been as good as he was in the bubble. Um, Kendrick Nunn has obviously been better, so that's you know uh, a leg up for them. But they also are like they're sort of cobbling together the Jay Crowder role with like Ariza and Bielitsa now, and it's like Crowder was Ariza and Bielitsa together last year, at least in the bubble. Yeah. Um, Definitely not in Memphis before that, but no, no, no. Um, so it's just it's it's more difficult, I think, for them this year. Like, and I, and I, I do think like the fact that they turned at the deadline essentially one rotation player into three was was probably the most impressive series of moves at the deadline. Like, they turned Kelly Olynyk and three guys that were camping out on the roster into Ariza, Bielitsa, and Oladipo. Yeah, without having to give up a ton of assets to make it happen either. Like, I mean, the Bielitsa part of that in some ways was the most shocking just because, like, he can play. I don't think that he is the answer to any playoff team's prayers, but he can help and that the Kings couldn't get anything for him. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty... A lot of teams, I think, sort of overplayed their hand at the deadline. Although, like, some of it is just because... If you're at the deadline and you have like, you know, a big shooter like that, like Bielitsa, and it's like, you know, what can we get for him? And someone's like, well, 
what if Trevor Ariza gets bought out and I can just sign him instead, you know? Or like if you have J.J. Redick at the start of the season and it's like, well, what if – I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Like, I don't know, someone from – you know, I can't think of the player off the top of my head because I don't really know who's like getting bought out in the next few weeks. Like what if Wayne Ellington gets bought out from the Pistons and we can sign him? You know, like why do I want to give up? good second round picks for JJ Redick at that point. So some of it is like, how much do you really think you're going to get for Bielisa? Like if, you know, PJ Tucker is available for giving someone their first round pick back. Yeah, that's true. I, li- I like to end them and end conversations right now, but also at other points in the year with what, what are you really going to be watching over the next couple weeks? You know, teams, players, dynamics, what, what's, what's, what, what are you, what's on your radar? Everyone's health, basically. <laughs> like, at, at this point, what matters is, like, who are teams actually going to have on the court when they get to the playoffs? Like, are the Clippers going to be healthy at any point? What does AD look like when he comes back? Um, can the Blazers get their guys, like, fully healthy and integrated? CJ looks like he's, you know, back in his rhythm. Can Nurk get himself worked back up to where he was in the bubble last year? Like, can they stop anybody at that point? if that happens or are they just going to get like roasted in the first round again because they can't get a stop? Like, are the Celtics ever going to be healthy and like put some wins together? Um, You know, are the, are the heat going to get healthy or like, are the nets going to get healthy? Like underrated question. When's KD coming back? Yeah. A very basic one, but a very important one um, to be sure. Point Zion is going to be something that I watch closely. I'm, I'm really interested in, in where that goes. This Nuggets um, team, you know, more time there. Uh, let's see. Um, I think, but the the, um, the Thunder and the Pelicans have a bunch of guys who are just like super young and athletic, and I really just want to see them play a bunch, even if they're probably not going to lead to wins. Like I want to see more of Alexander Walker and Lewis on the court for the Pelicans and even like Jackson Hayes occasionally, even though I'm not as high on him as some other people. And then like, show me Moses Brown, Lou Dort, Maladon, um, Isaiah Roby, Pokashevsky, just like keep throwing those guys on the court because it's fun. You know? Yeah. The, 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 the team at the bottom of the East, by the way, do not have guys like that except like Chumo Kiki on the magic. It's super fun. Yeah, Chuma's been been more more interesting than I thought he was going to be. It's something I'm going to talk about probably at some point fairly soon. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot there's a lot to kind of take stock of. We have you know a month and a half is the way that I would summarize it left in the season. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work all over, including the Damian Lillard Portland piece that we talked about. That's at five thirty eight. You can also check out Last Night in Basketball. It's his work on Substack, which is great, of course, as well, and any appearances he does. And that's also a great reason to follow Jared on Twitter at jadubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five. Love having him on. And as I kind of talked about as we we got into our discussion, this is a challenging moment because you don't want to overreact to things, but you also want to react 
to what you've seen. So it was fun to talk about all of that with Jared. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode in the podcast player of your choosing, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever. That is a great thing to do because this show will never come out on a specific day of the week. It's just depending on my availability and guests and everything else like that. Also, word of mouth, telling other people you like it. And you can also tell other people you liked it by rating and reviewing the show. Again, in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts, but totally fine if it's in something else. It just helps other people find the show can also check out Dunked On slash Dunked On Prime. Nate and I are doing one public episode a week and then four for Dunked On Prime, which is going extremely well. Love doing that process. And also the NBA cast, which is Nate and I broadcasting games every Monday on League Pass. And it's so much fun. You can watch the game and listen to our commentary and have a really great one this week. Um, Jazz Mavericks is going to be, uh, and that's a 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific start for those of you who are so inclined. You can also ask questions using the hashtag NBACast. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I promise I will take the time to read it. I respond when I can. Um, I'm less good, admittedly, about that, but that's why it's input I, is the way that I like you to think of it. Um, and I will take it and take it to heart because it matters to me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.